following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Good morning. We're getting close to the end of our journey in the book of Nahum. But before we turn to the book of Nahum this morning, I want us to turn back just a little bit in the Bible as it's, and there's another book that focuses on Nineveh. And I want to go there for a little bit at the beginning of this uh, time today. And that book is, I think you can pretty well guess which one that is, that's uh, Jonah. Now Jonah doesn't take much space, so if you flip two pages, you'll miss it, just like I did just now. (laughs) But here we are. Now, in the book of Nahum, we have been looking at a number of things, and we have categorized some of the things that we saw as speaking specifically to the idea that the judgment that was coming to Nineveh were certain. And so we call that the certainty of the judgment. We have also seen certain details as to how the judgment would happen, what would happen, what would be uh, some of the specific kinds of things that would be a part of that judgment. But also included in that chapter, or in that book, we saw reasons given, or or explanations given, as to why the judgment was coming. And so those three basic ideas we talked about, and we see, a judgment that's coming and is certain, it's going to happen. A description of that judgment. And then reasons why it's coming. One of the things that we have mentioned before and we find to be quite intriguing is that in, in our Bibles we have this book of Jonah. And Jonah is a unique book. At, we can say that's unique and all the books are unique, but in this regard, that the focus is on Nineveh in the book of Jonah. So we have the book of Jonah with a focus on Nineveh. And then later on, we get the book of Nahum with a focus on Nineveh. That's quite unique in the scriptures. So there really is something that we ought to be able to learn and to understand and to consider that God has chosen to do this and to present things in this way. Now, the book of Jonah shows us how God humbled Jonah to finally get him to carry the message that God had the Ninevites. 
And so the chapters in the early parts, we see the details of how that worked out. That God has selected a man called Jonah. And God says, this, Jonah, is the mission that I have for you. I have an assignment for you. You are to go down into Nineveh, and you are to proclaim what I tell you to proclaim. That's quite interesting. Nineveh was not an Israelite country. It was a pagan country. But after Jonah finally went and delivered the message, he felt humiliated with the result of that message that he had preached. Now, we can say that's a really strange place to be to carry out what God wanted and required and then having done it to feel humiliated as a, resu- as a response to what happened after God's word was proclaimed. But that's what happened with Jonah. He felt humiliated. So he said these words in Jonah chapter 4. If uh, Let's see, I think that's 4 chapter 2. Let me look and see if I got it right. Chapter 4. Oh, yeah, there it is. In chapter 4 of Jonah, look at the second part. I called it B in my notes. But it said... You are a gracious and merciful God. This is Jonah talking to God. Slow to anger. Abundant in love and kindness. One who relents from doing harm. So Jonah is saying to God, this is the kind of God you are. And we can say that Jonah had that right. He was speaking about God, and he was speaking truth about this God whom he had been ordered to serve. Now, we saw the, in the next part of that chapter, and Jonah going through, what he was going through. Jonah became angry. 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 Look at verse 8. When the sun arose, that God prepared a vehement east wind, and the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. Then he wished death for himself, and he said, it is better for me to die. Then God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And so God had raised up this plant and it provided shade to Jonah and then raised it up and then he just, shall we say, killed the plant. And so Jonah now was getting the heat and no one was protected. 
So he said, is it right for you to be angry, even to death? In verse 10, but the Lord said, you have had pity on the plant. Notice now, Jonah, the Lord has upbraided him. He said, you have had pity on the plant. Now, it's good to be able to have pity, but he said, you've had pity on the plant. And he said, and you didn't even labor for that, nor did you make it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. So God is saying, Jonah, let, pay attention to me now, because I see what you, what your situation is. I see how you're thinking about things, how you're expressing yourself. I see that. And now in verse 11, let us put our attention there. Here's what the Lord says. And should I not pity Nineveh? So he's saying, Jonah, if you can pity the plant, shouldn't I pity Nineveh? That What a contrast that is. What? is a comparison between a plant and Nineveh. I think that's a valid question for our contemporaries, some of them, because some of them seem to value, value plant and animal life more than certain human life. That's the kind of issue here. But now listen to the next part of this. He said, in which are more than 120,000 persons. Now, that's a lot of people. So to have a pity for a plant, but there are 120,000 people, and he can't have pity for them. But God says, I'm not like you, Jonah. You have pity for the plant, but I have pity for all these people, 120,000 of them. And then he goes on to let us see help us to see that the pity is not just a matter of kind of a pity for pity's sake or just something to do, but he sees the condition of the people, and that brings pity. But listen to the next part of this. What about the people? He said they can't discern between their right hand and their left. In other words, there are 120,000 people, and they're blind, and they need help. Should not I pity them? That's what God has sent to him. And he said, they have much livestock. So that's the situation that the Ninevites had. They, 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 they didn't know. They couldn't tell. I mean, they, they just were in a bad spot. And look what God said to Jonah. Look at the first part of the book. Now, the word of the Lord. This is Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh that great city and cry out against it for their wickedness 
has come up before me. And so that's what has gotten God's attention. These people have such wickedness. But God went to them. He sent a messenger. And the people heard the words that the Lord said. And what did the people do? They they heard the word and they repented. I'm going to pick up a couple of verses here in chapter, a few verses here in chapter 3. I'm still in Jonah. So we're talking about now the condition of the Ninevites. They were ripe for judgment when Jonah preached to them. We just read that it was their wickedness that had gotten God's attention. He said, it's come to me. Their wickedness is at such a level that I now am going to respond to it. That's essentially what God is saying. That wickedness had gotten to a level that now he's going to respond. And so he did by sending Jonah. So that gave the people an opportunity. In verse 5 of chapter 3, it says this. So the people of Nineveh believed God. That's a good place to be. That's where all the things that are good begin. They believed God. And here's what they did. They proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Then the word of the Lord, then the word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying. Now remember, and I know you do because I just read it, who are these people? I guess that their wickedness has come up before me. But this is what is being proclaimed. The king is saying this, listen, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water, but let men and beasts be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Now, They now are seeing things clearly. This proclamation from this king is evidencing that he now is seeing clearly and correctly the situation that they're in and said, believe God. And so now they said, well, maybe if we repent and decide to do things God's way, maybe he won't cause us now to perish. So then in verse 10, Then God saw their works that they turned from their evil way. And God relented from the disaster 
that he has said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. And that's the thing that displeased Jonah. That's incredible. That's incredible. But you know, I wonder sometimes how we can think about people, especially the ones that we think are unusually evil in their doings. And I wonder if we might be tempted to have an attitude like Jonah, if God did with that person or persons what he did with these Ninevites. And those people turned and repented. Would somebody be disappointed that they didn't get the whack that they were looking for from God to fall upon that person? Or would they be able to rejoice because the angels in heaven are rejoicing that another one has been brought to the kingdom? So these things that we can think about in terms of how we look at what the Lord is teaching here and consider how we think about things and what we should be doing. And so this is the thing. Now, I brought this in. In in Nahum, I'm going to turn back to Nahum. But uh, I have thought of my, you know, when I was thinking about this, and I said, well, Nineveh had what we just talked about as a part of their historical records, shall I say. This event or series of events that happened under Jonah, is that was the experience of the nation before, the, before Nahum ever came. And so they, that was a part of it. So I have said now, can a people or an individual learn from history and then not repeat the bad things that get the same bad result that they got before or set them up for the same bad result that happened before? But when we, by the time that Nahum comes, it's as if what happened under Jonah was not a part of the history. What happened? Did they rewrite the history so that the succeeding generations didn't learn what happened? Or did they elide or remove certain things from the historical documents? Or did they selectively grab a part of it and say, well, this is all we need of that? That God is slow to anger. See, that sort of thing, that one little section. Did they just select that part and say, that's all we need about it? That's just food for thought. But the point of the matter is that when we get into Nineveh and we see the harshness of the judgment language that's given, we know that God is a just God and what he does is just and the judgment that's coming to Nineveh 
is a deserved judgment. And it's not because there was any lack in God. He had no lack. So that when he proclaimed in verse 5 of chapter 3 of Nahum to the Ninevites, when he said, I am against you. Now that word was very fitting for Jonah when the situation that we're in when Jonah came. God says, I'm against you. But they repented. God relented. And they moved on down the corridors of time. And then God says, I'm against you. And so he says, I'm going to shame you. I'm going to make you the, shall we say, the laughing stock of the world. I'm going to make you to be the most contemptible so that everybody will see and so that your shame will be beyond measure. You, great, mighty Nineveh, that great and mighty city. So he says, I'm going to make you vow, in verse 6. I'm going to make you a spectacle, in verse 11. And it shall come to pass that everybody who looks at you, they'll run away. There will be then nothing that will be inviting, that will attract the people. See, Nineveh had a lot of people who came into their clutches because of the attractiveness of what they had and what was going on with them. But this prophecy says that the day is coming when it's going to be the reverse of that. People won't be coming. They'll be fleeing. And Nineveh will be laid waste. And then it says, who will bemoan her? Where shall I seek comforts for you? As I said before, the idea that somebody would moan, somebody would mourn for the one who has departed. It's a sad thing if somebody departs and there's no one, no one to mourn the loss. God said, Nineveh, you will be like that. And then moving on to verse 8, still in chapter 3 here in Nahum, he makes that comparison between Thebes and uh, Nineveh, or the Assyrians at this time when Nahum is coming along. He makes that comparison because he says, now consider that Thebes was a nation much like yours. It was a powerful place. It had natural, a natural arrangement with the water bodies and all that that made it better and easier for them to protect themselves. They were a mighty people. They probably thought they were strong enough to withhold against whatever enemy came against them. But it says here, 
It didn't happen that way. Although they were situated by a river and they had waters around her, whose rampart was the sea, whose wall was the sea, that wasn't enough. But that's not all she had. She had allies. Ethiopia, Egypt, Put, Lubim. These other nations. And so the first line of defense is to have your own elements for your own personal defense to defend yourself. That would be like your first line of defense. But then to have allies is like a second line of defense, which makes you safer against the enemies who will come against you. And God is saying to Nineveh, thieves have that. Or your word might say in your Bible, no Amon. <laughs> but they had that. Now, but it didn't it didn't last. What happened to them? In verse 10, they were carried away and they were sent into captivity. The young children were dashed to pieces. At the head of every street, and I'm reading in verse 10 now, they cast lots for her honorable men. And all her great men were bound in chains. It's, to me, the great irony is that it was the Assyrians who did that to them. These Ninevites, these Assyrians, they are the people who did that to them. And God says, what you did to them is going to be done to you. And we can say, it was. That's historical record. It happened. They couldn't envision such a day to come, but it did. Verse 11, it says, you will be drunk. You will be hidden. They're going to be like drunkards. Now, somebody used the word drinking the wrath of God, but the idea of being drunk in a time when you need to be prepared for battle and warfare You'll be hiding. You'll be trying to hide just as so many peoples have hidden from you. You now will be the ones trying to hide. You will be the one now seeking refuge. All your strongholds will be like fig trees with ripened figs. And so this idea is that you, you, you are in such a situation that it's as if you have no defense at all. The figs dropping, just dropping from the trees, shake the tree, the fig fall right into the mouth. That means that you, there's nothing. You, you may as well not even uh, uh, try to do anything because of the figs. I think about these figs. I think about my grandfather who used to have figs. And what a wonderful thought that is about him. But anyway, like the fig just dropping off of a tree, that's how defenseless they will be. All the strongholds are fig trees, ripened figs. If they are shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. Very vivid language about what was going to befall this nation. And look at the next part of it. 
in verse 13. Your people in your midst are women. Now, what are they meaning by that? He says that they are defenseless. They are as if they are just a regular, let's say a regular non-military woman who's in the face of an army coming against them. That's a, wow, what a position that is for them to be in. That's not a good place for them. They will be just that defenseless and vulnerable and fearful as if there were a defenseless woman in face of a massive army. That's what they would be like. The gates of your land are wide open for your enemies. It's as if your gates don't matter. Fire shall devour the bars of your gates. So now he says to them, a taunt, I call this. So he's saying, okay, this is what's going to happen. Now here's what you should do. What should you do in the midst of battle? What should you do? Well, draw water for the siege. Why are you drawing water? So you want to have enough water stored so you can survive through this battle. Or as Brother Forbush might say, so do you have enough water to last you until you get through to the to the end of the tunnel. Until you get through this. Fortify your strongholds. Go into the clay and tread the mortar. Make strong the brick killing. And that's really quite interesting. The archaeological evidence shows that they had actually had walls inside the wall where apparently what they were trying to do is to fortify, uh, re-fortify areas of the wall that had been breached. And so we see records of that. Archaeological records also show, at, and it says in some places, ash two inches thick, indicating burning. He talks about fire, your gates, and, and that. Fire, devour the bars of your gates. And so there is historical evidence that correlates with what the text says was going to happen. This was a pl bad place. And then it says in the next verse, verse 15, fire will devour you, the sword will be cut off. I will eat you up like locusts. Now locusts is a, it, you know, we see locusts used many times in scripture in various different contexts. Pastor gave a real good uh, thing for us one time, talking about those locusts and all the different things and that, and that just fascinating. But the locusts, now see the locusts can be so multitudinous, so many of them. And so it says here, we'll eat you up like locusts. You know, these guys come in, they eat everything, and nothing's left. But in case something is left, another branch of them will come on in and take that. And then if something else is left after that, well, another group will come in and, and get that. So there'll be nothing. So that's the way. It's going to be like locusts, right? I will eat up you like locusts. And so he says, well, here's what you should do. Make yourself many like the locusts. You need to be multitudinous like that. Because if you're going to defend yourself, you're going to need a multitude 
Make yourself many, like the swarming locusts. You have multiplied your merchants, verse 16, more than the stars of heaven. The locust plunders and flies away. Now this is interesting. Because the merchants, they were situated perfectly for being merchandisers with the canal systems and all that and access, easy access to Babylon for all this trading and all the things they were doing. And so they were just set up perfectly to be a merchandising city. But all that was not going to be good enough. It wasn't going to help in the end. And so he says here, your commanders, your commanders, your leaders, your officers, they're like swarming locusts. And your great, your generals like great grasshoppers. So what do these things do? So it talks about the locusts. The locusts in the cool of the evening, you know, they're sitting everywhere. But it's almost like, I think the idea is that they're kind of immobile when it's cold. The locusts. But when the sun comes up and warms them, what do they do? They fly away. And he says, they never, oh, your commanders, your generals, which camp in the hedges on a cold day, when the sun rises, they flee away. And the place where they are is not known. And so these ones that they were expecting and should have been their defense, they're out of there. They say, I'm out of here. I'm gone. Don't, no need to even look for me because you're not going to find me. I'm just gone. And that's, they're going to be like that. And so it talks about their commanders and their generals. And now it talks about their shepherds and their nobles and their people. Calling out all of the dimensions of Nineveh and the Assyrians to say, you really are in a bad place. Your shepherds slumber, in verse 18. O king of Assyria, a shepherd slumbering. Your nobles rest in the dust. Your people are scattered on the mountains, and no one gathers them. That is, what can we say about a thing like that? Now, come on, I'm going to move on into verse 19 now. Your injury has no healing. That's a rather ominous word. No one with a sickness wants to hear that word. That there's no healing. Your wound is severe. So that is the certainty of the judgment. All who hears news of you will clap their hands. For upon whom has not your wickedness passed continually? They had consistency, and they were consistently wicked. They were consistently wicked. And that was not where they should have been. And so we have then a complete 
reversal, where people have been invited and people have been attracted and drawn into Nineveh, the merchandise capital of that world, and all the trade and all the things that they had that attracted their strong fortifications, their geographical setting which helped with defense matters, their allies who were expected to be able to come and to help, just in case, just in case they might need that. Not that they thought they would, but just in case they had all these allies available to them. But as I said before, the problem really was what God said, why do you fight against me? God says the battle is his. And this is the problem with Nineveh. When Jonah went, God had chosen that it was time for his intervention because of the wickedness of the people. And his intervention through Jonah was to send this message to the people. And the response to the people was to listen and to learn and to do accordingly and to be spared of that devastating judgment. But with Nahum, all that opportunity was gone. The slow to anger God, the long-suffering God, the merciful, gracious God, said, Nineveh, you will be no more. I'm done with you. It's interesting in the historical records that for a long time people didn't even know where the Nineveh uh, and Assyrian territory was. They talk about Alexander the Great marching his army right across the territory and not even recognizing where he was in terms of the historical context that the Assyrians had been there and that was where they were situated. Other greats passing through, not even recognizing it. There were some archaeologists, I think in 1842, who made some great discoveries. And I think the beginnings of modern discoveries of the ancient city of Nineveh. And it's, a, it's marvelous what they've uncovered. But Assyria as a, as a people, they're gone. They're done, finished. Now some people said that there are still people who have some of the traditions or things like that that were from that culture, but as a people, they don't exist anymore. They're gone. That was the just recompense of the evil and the wickedness that they had done. God had given all opportunity, and we can say God had gone beyond, if we can use this expression, beyond the call of duty. 
to give opportunity. I think we can say that for every case. That no one departs and can say that God never gave me an opportunity to be made right with him. No one can do that. Scripture tells us that. I'm not going to go into all that, but that's the way it is. The book of Nahum. I hope this has been helpful exercise uh, to look at this this book and I think next time we're going to move to something different but don't be surprised if I come and give one more time before I leave this one behind for now let's have a prayer our father in heaven We thank you for being gracious and merciful towards us, long-suffering, patient, and kind. Help us, Lord, to not respond in a way of rejecting or overlooking our responsibilities because we know these traits of the character of God but help us remember that not only these things, but you're also a God of justice. And that there comes a time when you will intervene in every life. We're only here for a short time. And then you will intervene. Help us to be in the right place doing the right things when that intervention comes. We ask in the name of Christ our Savior with thanksgiving. Amen. Thank you for your kind attention.